This is the Endurance Church Podcast with Pastor Anthony Bass. At Endurance Church, our goal is to live well and finish strong by becoming faithful disciples of Christ. We do this through loving, disciplined, Bible-based teaching, encouragement, and care. For more information about our ministry, head to endurancechurch.org. And now, today... Uh-oh, how are y'all doing this morning? Good? Awesome. All right. So, um... I'm excited about today's sermon. It's an interesting one because it deals with some heart issues. And as you see here, we're, we're talking over the next year about the Father heart of God. Understand, as we communicate what the heart is, really it's simply just God's will. It's God's will. And I know who you are based upon your actions. But basically, what are you willing to do? It reveals your heart. So this word will and heart, I'm trying to say, are synonymous throughout Scripture. When we surrender to the will of God, I call that worship here at Endurance Church. God has a will. He has a kingdom. He's the king of his kingdom. And those people who are in his kingdom, those people who are his subjects, are willingly surrendering their will, their heart, their desires to the will, the heart, desire of the king. Are you a citizen of God's kingdom? And I believe here at Endurance Church, that's our heart to hopefully get you to engage this process called spiritual formation. And what we're trying to do is to to train the heart to respond to God's will. Because a lot of times God's will is in contrast to our will. I mean, remember when Jesus Christ was in the Garden of Gethsemane, what did he pray? Not my will, but thine will, King James, your will be done. 
Are you asking God, am I doing your will? That's the challenge we have daily. When Greg talked about the fork in a row, that fork can come up in a variety of ways. That fork can come up when it talks about when you are in the situation where you're considering who to marry. When you're considering what church to go to or what school to go to or who to, to date or what. I can go on and on. Are you seeking God's will in your life? Because that's essential. That's important. And by and large, I can say that is very much the reality of our existence. Those people who are willing to surrender to the will of God are those people who are worshiping God in spirit and in truth. And that's the challenge we have, to worship him that way. Because a lot of times I don't want to do God's will. Because we've been made free will creatures. And we have an, an obligation to surrender to God. But he doesn't force us. He doesn't coerce us. He's a gentleman. He doesn't use leadership techniques and strategies to get us to do what he wants to do. He simply asks. He suggests. And we have to decide whether he's trustworthy enough for us to surrender our livelihood, our life, our family, our friends. That's God trusting him. You entrust your soul to God. I love the prayer that Jesus said right before he died. I say it oftentimes when I get in an airplane. Just joking, but I'm being honest. He says, Lord, into your hand I what? Commit my spirit. There's this um, quote about David in the Old Testament, and I, I wrestled with it for a long, long time until finally I realized the heart was really the will. And what distinguished David from most men wasn't necessarily he was attractive. All his brothers were attractive. But the Bible says he had a what after God? He had a heart after God. What it means is he had a heart that sought after the heart of God. He had a will that sought after the will of God. If you look at David throughout his life, he does some very peculiar things. Remember when he didn't kill Saul when he had an opportunity the first and second time? He didn't kill him. He said, I will not touch God's anointed. He'll die another way, but I won't do that. Where do you see that in the scriptures? That was David's theological understanding of how God wanted him to respond to that situation. Now, David would have killed Saul like his men suggested. He would have been king immediately. But David knew that wasn't God's way. God's will is different than our will. He just doesn't do things the way we would do them. He has a different perspective on reality. And it's our job to learn how to trust him, to surrender our will to his will. That's what discipleship is. You're in a process of constantly surrendering your desires, your heart, to the heart of the king. He's worthy of that. We'll try to use this. No. Next slide, please. I have a quote. It's from A.W. Tozer, one of my favorite authors. He says this. He says, have you noticed how much praying for revival has been going on of late and how little revival has resulted? I believe the problem is that we have been trying to substitute praying for obeying. And it simply will not work. We have a challenge before us today. We've gotten really good at church. Throughout this country, we do church really well. But do we obey? Next slide. This is coming from the Gospel of Mark. And you, when you get to the background of 
the different gospels, it gives you a greater understanding what the context helps you. What I'm trying to say is the context helps you understand what's being communicated. And remember, John Mark or or Mark, he is an individual who was connected to a couple of great people in early Christianity. Remember, John, he was connected to Luke, Barnabas, Paul, and here, this is actually Peter's gospel. So here, John Mark, or Mark, is writing down Peter's gospel. Some scholars believe that this is actually the first gospel that's written because all the other gospels, well, Luke and Matthew have all the information of Mark in it. Some people believe that Matthew came first. It doesn't necessarily matter. But understand that Mark is written very quickly. There's this word that happens consistently throughout Mark. It's the word immediately. He fast forwards his gospel. But remember, Mark has a Greek name in reality. It's Marcus. And his writing was actually to a Greek audience. So remember, Mark is writing his gospel to a, no, I'm sorry, not a Greek audience. Thank you for the reminder, Holy Spirit. The Roman audience. Now, thank you for fixing that. He has a Roman name. Uh, he has a Latin name. So he is writing his gospel to a Roman audience. And why is that important? Because the, during that time, people are questioning, well, if Jesus Christ is the Messiah, then why did the Romans kill him? If he's so powerful, then why isn't he currently ruling and reigning? Because remember, during that day and time, people had a specific proclivity how they thought Jesus Christ would come back. They thought that when the Messiah came back, he would be a warlord king. He would be just like King David. And they thought when Jesus came back, man, he'd be riding on his horse. He'd help Israel overthrow Roman oppression. But the problem is how the gospel of Mark works. It's weird. It kind of goes like this. Geographically, it starts here in what's called the area of um, the Dead Sea. Um, Greg and Jared and I were there. I keep saying that because I'm trying to make you jealous, right? <laughs> Nevertheless, we were there, and we didn't get to go in the water, so I'm jealous of the people who did get to go in the water, but we were at the Dead Sea. It's the lowest part of the earth. But what's interesting about Mark, from chapters 1, 2, and 3, they go on a steady incline geographically until chapter 8, where they're on the top of Mount Hermon, or near that area. And remember, Mount Hermon, at the bottom of it, was a place of worship for Pan, Pan, not Peter Pan, but it's kind of like Peter Pan, but nevertheless, it's a different story. But there, the revelation of who Jesus Christ was came from Peter's mouth. And what did Peter say about Jesus Christ when he said, who do you say I am? And what did Peter say? You are the... That revelation started the downward slope till he came to the cross. So here, we're in chapter 3, and he's ascending up. He's trying to, in a sense, reveal himself to people. Now, we know from other different books of the Bible, particularly the Gospels, Jesus wasn't just totally overt with what he was doing. He would heal people in Mark, and he would say, shh, don't tell anybody. It's called the messianic secret. Because every time people would go and tell people, this guy healed me, the whole cities would flood to him because they wanted healing, but no one listened to what he was saying. God wants us to believe his words, not just a miracle. Remember, a wicked and evil and adulterous generation seeking after what? A sign. God doesn't want us to seek after signs. He wants us to trust him by his word. When my wife says, I love you, I don't say prove it. She would, no, she wouldn't. <laughs> she would be upset with me, right? 
Here, Mark. Jesus Christ has just started doing something amazing. He prayed at the beginning of Mark chapter 3. He prays and then he goes into a synagogue. Actually, Greg and Jared and I were at this synagogue. I'm just, I'm being honest. (laughs) We were there. So nevertheless, at this synagogue, he performs a miracle. Jesus is actually set up. They set him up because he heals on the Sabbath. Now, this big debate happens regarding why does Jesus heal on the Sabbath? But you have to understand from John, Jesus only healed based upon his obedience to God. Understand this. Jesus didn't do one thing, not one, that the Father didn't tell him to do. So when Jesus heals somebody, it's because God the Father told him to heal somebody. So when Jesus heals somebody at the beginning of Mark chapter 3, he gets in trouble. Jesus heals somebody, obeying God, and gets in trouble. You can get in trouble obeying God. Jesus, out of obedience, heals this man, and now they seek to kill him. After that, all these people start flooding to him because they want to be healed and delivered. And Jesus is healing people and delivering people. But what happens is demons in chapter 3 start coming out of people, being exercised. They're being delivered. And as the demons come out, they start saying this, you are the what? Son of God. Demons are saying Jesus is the Son of God. And you know what Jesus does? He says, shh, be quiet. Stop that. Why does Jesus say that? Because in my opinion, If I see a demon come out of somebody and say that Jesus is the Son of God, I would say, oh, maybe what the demon is saying is true. But Jesus is like, that's not how this is going to be played out. Why? Because that was not the will of the Father. God's will was not that people hear about Jesus' identity through demonic means. That's not how this game was being played out. Now we jump into verse 13. In verse 13 now, Jesus in, in uh, Luke has been praying all night. He's up on the mountain before this event here in 13, praying all night. Why is Jesus praying all night? Because he wants to know God's will regarding which disciples are supposed to be his apostles. Now, this time, many people are following Jesus, many people. But Jesus only picks 12, and one of those 12 is a devil, But he only picks the people the Father tells him to pick. Jesus is competent. He's smart. He can do all these great things, but he surrenders all that to carry out God's plan for his life. Why didn't he pick 100 people, 200 people, 300 people? Why didn't he just tell everybody, come follow me? Because that wasn't God's plan for his life. God's plan had Jesus to surrender this military strategy and put it to bed. This tactical advantage Jesus could not use, he had to surrender to only picking 12 people because that was God's plan. That was God's will. That was God's desire. That was God's heart for Jesus' ministry. So then here in 13, it says, and he went up on a mountain and called to him those he himself wanted. And they came to him. Then he appointed, he manufactured he anointed, he, he picked out 12. 
Why? So they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. Everybody here who is called to Jesus Christ, everybody here is hopefully called to Jesus Christ. But you have to understand this one thing, you're called to him to be sent from him. This word sin right here is apostolo. It's like where we get the word what? Apostle. So Jesus calls people to himself so he can send them out on mission. He sent them out on mission. He says, look, that they might be with him and that they might be sent them out to to do what? To preach and to have power to heal sickness and to cast out demons. Now, this is a strategic move by Jesus. He's given them the power he has so they can go and spread the news about the gospel to everyone. And the gospel, the kingdom was that the kingdom of heaven is near. God's rule is near. God's will is being manifested on the earth. So get ready to surrender your will to the will of the Father. What's the evidence this is happening? These miracles. It's time. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. So these people, these men, these disciples are carrying out Jesus' will on the earth. Jesus Christ is carrying out the Father's will. His disciples are carrying out his will. Jesus doesn't do anything that the Father doesn't want him to do. So basically, his disciples are carrying out the will of the Father. In verse 16, he starts listing the individuals who followed him. And we know these people called the 12 apostles. Simon, whom he gave the name Peter. And we know he has a brother named Andrew. But Andrew is not listed with him. So this is a part of a hierarchy here. He starts off with Simon Peter. He goes on to say what? James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Bolanerges, or Bolonienerges. I try my best ever to say it. It means what? Sons of thunder. That's how I get away from that one right there. So these men were called the sons of thunder. One time the Samaritans weren't doing what they thought the disciples wanted to do, and they were like, Lord, should we call fire down on them? This is, this is how they roll. Imagine that. Okay, whoever doesn't come to church, I'm going to call fire on you, right? Like everybody be up in church then that day. Oh, but I can't do it like that. Never mind. So you see the, the top of the hierarchy, but then it gets really weird because then it goes, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon, the Canaanite, which really means zealot. And then lastly, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. Now, understand this point. Jesus has picked these people. And if I am a person who, in a sense, is a Roman at this time reading this, I want to know, well, how did Jesus get put on the cross? He was betrayed. Why did he pick somebody who would betray him? That's not good leadership. Is that all wisdom, all knowledge? That doesn't make sense. Why would Jesus pick somebody that would betray him? Because that was the will of the Father. That was God's will for his life. That's a tough one to swallow. But nevertheless, Jesus surrendered to the will of the Father. And the Father said about Jesus, This is my beloved Son in whom I well pleased. Jesus did everything right. And by him picking somebody who would betray him, it's still okay. 
But what it's showing is Jesus' trust in God the Father. Uh, we, we know Jesus died on the cross, but he was resurrected. And Jesus ultimately received all good and will receive that good for all eternity. But here, while he had time, he surrendered his will to the will of the Father, and part of that will included him picking up a man who would betray him. And it says, and they went into a house. So Jesus, up on a hill, picks 12, and now they're walking down to Peter's house. And now they're at Peter's house, which is right near the synagogue, because we saw that. And then it said, then the multitude came together again, so that they could not so much as eat bread. So now Jesus has these men with him who have surrendered their will to his will. And they're walking with Jesus, and now the entire crowd is going with him inside a house. It's an amazing scene. Jesus is getting momentum, the big mo. All things are going pretty good at this time. Watch this. In 21 it says, but, that but is a contrast. It contrasts whatever came before. So here what came before is all these people came together again to be near Jesus. Look at this. But when his own people heard about this, in contrast to the other people, his own people went out to lay a hold of him. Next slide, please. For they said, this is his own people. He is out of his mind. These people are saying, Jesus is cray-cray. He done lost it. He's starting a cult. Get him. Now, if you don't understand the background of the Jewish culture, you might miss the point here. Because remember, Jesus' father, whose name was what? Joseph is dead at this time. So who's the head of Mary's house? Who's the firstborn son? Jesus. Jesus, you got responsibilities. You're supposed to be taking out the trash. And you here up in somebody's house, got all these people, can't even eat bread. Like, what are you doing, Jesus? Oh, he's crazy. And now the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, he has Beelzebub. Beelzebub's a, a connotation for Satan. In that day and time, though, it was a derivative of an ancient God who was the Lord of the flies. I read that book in elementary, uh, junior high. I don't know why I read it, but nevertheless, I did read it. But that was Beelzebub. He referenced, he was a reference for Satan. Check this out. And and the rule, by the ruler of the demons, he cast out demons. So remember, Jesus, obeying God's will, healing people on the Sabbath. People are trying to come at him. Then he cast out demons. The demons are saying, oh, my goodness. Oh, you're the son of God. He tells them to be quiet. Then he calls the people who he wants. All this is indicative of one thing, the will of God. And now, these Pharisees, these scribes, Say he's demon-possessed. A demon is in him, giving him the power to cast out other demons. And Jesus goes, he scoffs. You've got to be kidding me. And he gives him a school lesson. He goes on to say, so now Jesus, hearing that, he called them to himself and said to them in parables. Now understand this. Jesus spoke openly and literally until that statement right there that he has a demon. If you go back 
In Matthew, all the way up to chapter 12, Jesus speaks clearly about what he's trying to do, clearly about the kingdom. But after that, after that statement he has Beelzebub, he no longer speaks openly. Then from that point forward, he speaks in parables because he is obligated to still speak the truth, but he doesn't want them to understand what he's saying so they can be judged. Why? Because they've already rejected him as Messiah. They are not accepting him right now. They said, this ain't the one. And if he is the one, we don't want God's will. Say that one more time. Now, it's my earnest belief, looking at the scriptures, they knew Jesus was from God. It says in John, no one could do miracles unless they were from God. They knew Jesus was from God. But when they heard what he said, they said, we don't want that. Jesus talked about the kingdom. And remember when Paul was going around preaching about the the kingdoms of the Gentiles, they liked everything Paul said until one point, is that now the Gentiles have an opportunity to come into the kingdom. And when they heard that it says in Acts, the Jewish people revolted, no way, the Gentiles can't come here with us, no way. They rejected the gospel. Here, they're rejecting the gospel. And because they rejected the gospel, Jesus no longer speaks openly to them. They're being judged. They didn't accept God's will. And it goes on to say, Jesus gave them some learning. How can Satan cast out Satan? And what would your response be to that? How can Satan cast out Satan? He can't. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. We have this saying in old church, there's only one vision, and if there's two vision, it's called what? Die vision. That's, that was the old saying we had. A kingdom stands because it has one will, the will of the king. And if somebody comes up with a different will, he's trying to bring or she's trying to bring division in that kingdom. But what does Jesus say here? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom won't stand. Division precedes the destruction of a kingdom. Not only a kingdom, it goes deeper. Also a house. If a kingdom is divided against itself, a kingdom cannot stand. But also if a house is divided against itself, you know what? That house can't stand either. Now, this reference to a house is really interesting, right? Because we know God's kingdom is clear. God's kingdom is coming. The Jews are a big part of God's kingdom at this time, and they're seemingly division in that kingdom. But who just came up and said Jesus was cray-cray? His family. Those people in his house. And if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but has an end. Now, what is implicit here is Satan is not divided, nor is God's kingdom divided. Just get that straight off the top. So there's no division in Satan's kingdom because it's still running right now, and there's no division in God's kingdom because it's still standing right now. There's no division amongst the two. But listen to what Jesus says here. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds a strong man, and then he will plunder the house. 
It seems like that Jesus is randomly talking, but he's actually addressing how this individual was exercised, how the demon came out of the person. And what Jesus is saying is, no, there's no division of God's kingdom or Satan's kingdom. This isn't Satan casting out Satan. What this is is this is a strong man coming and taking over another man who's strong. He's trying to say, I, Jesus, have come in and I have already bound Satan. Now I have the authority to free those people from his clutches. So there's no division happening here. 33. Then his brothers and mother came. Uh oh. <laughs> this is weird. His, his brother, his mom, Mary, the virgin, she's here now. So Jesus is in trouble. Now, I'm not a Jewish person, but I've heard that in a Jewish family, the mom runs the show. That's kind of like my family, but I'm not Jewish, right? That's kind of how it is. My wife kind of runs the show, and I'm like, yes, ma'am. Okay. That's what I'll do. Here we go. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds a strong man, and then he will plunder the house. There's a war happening. Jesus describes a war. He said there's a war going on between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of darkness, and I'm freeing people from that kingdom. Don't mistake what's happening. After this, you see, I skipped a couple of verses because it talks about the unpardonable sin, which is blasphemy. In that context, what's described there is really they rejected Jesus as Messiah, and therefore they're in, since in danger of falling into the unpardonable sin. They willfully attributed the work of Satan to Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, and they're in trouble. They rejected Jesus as the Messiah, and there's no more salvation for them because there's no way for them to be saved if you reject Jesus as the Messiah. They rejected, let me put it this way, the will of God for their lives. Because they rejected God's will, there's no place for them to be saved. 31, his brothers, his mother came standing outside. They sent to him, calling him. And a multitude was sitting around him. And they said to him, look, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. But he answered them saying, who is my mama? Who's my bro? Who? Rhetorical question, which he gives an answer. He looked around in a circle at those who sat about him. Understand this point. There's a geographical contrast there between his family who aren't with him, who should be with him. That's the point. Jesus is the head of his house. And his family, his biological family at that time, should be right there beside him. But they're not. They're wrestling with God's will for their life. So Jesus pulls and picks up some disciples, but they're with him. And also these crowds of people are with him. But his biological family at this time, they're rejecting God's will at this time. And Jesus makes a statement. Here are my mother. And my brothers, and this is the point of the whole sermon. For the rest of this year and some also going into next year to the summer, this will be the one phrase that you hear over and over. The will of God. The will of God. The heart of God. The desire of God. What's the most important thing in your life? Knowing God's will for your life. This is just one of almost 52 sermons that will be on that one topic alone. God's will, God's heart. 
He's a good God. He has a great heart. You're in the midst of a war, and your challenge is to trust him enough to surrender your precious will to his. You have a choice. Is God good enough to surrender my will to his? 35, for whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and mother. Are you doing God's will? Are you carrying out God's heart? This is an active word. This isn't passive. Our faith requires us to respond to God's will. There's no guessing this. If you go to the doctor to get inoculated or get a shot, like you're, you're going to get stuck. I'm sorry. I remember when I was a little kid, and they tried to, they tried to tell me this was going to happen. I, they had to put me in handcuffs. I was like, I'm not going to let anybody stick anything in this body. No! I don't know if they sedated me or not, but somehow I came up out of there. <laughs> and I had a shot. I was stuck. You go to the dentist, hopefully your teeth will be clean. It's, 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 you empty your bank account, you won't have money. Postmodernism has nothing to do with this. You can't create this reality. This is objective truth. You can, you can be postmodern all you want. And I'll say, if you believe reality is whatever you want to make it, then give me all your money and tell me how much money you have in the bank. Zero. You can be postmodern all you want, but understand this one thing. Doing the will of God is essential for your eternal salvation. It's objectively true. You can go to any school you want, you can learn any topic you want, but it ain't something you can make up. This ain't your own reality. This is objectively real. Next slide, please. A couple, couple points that were done for the day. God's children listened to their father. Throughout this entire text, one thing was consistent, the will of God. Are you doing God's will? I told my son Maximus, say, Maximus, tell mama, come here. He ran out of the room. An hour later, Maximus! Yes, daddy? I told you, mama, come here. Oh, okay. Two hours later, Maximus! Like, he wasn't doing my will. What is God telling you to do? That was not the Lord. Maybe it was. What is God telling you to do? Next slide, please. Know how to distinguish your true family. You want to know who's on your side, who's on your team? Look and see who's doing God's will. When I played for the Vikings, it was easy to see my teammates because we had the same color jersey. In this real life, we don't have jerseys. How do we distinguish who's on God's side and who's not? They're doing God's will. Next slide. Obey your daddy. I didn't say who's the daddy. I said obey your daddy. (laughs) Obey him. That's the safest place to be in the world. If someone said, here is a million dollars, take it. I pray, God, is this your will first? Because I might take that million dollars and get jacked, get robbed, that's slain. God may say, don't touch that money. I'm like, oh, no. You may say, that's the man I want to marry right there. He's so fine. Oh, I want to marry him. God says, no. You're like, no, God. I'm going to do it anyway. That can't be God. That's the devil. God says, no. No. Because he knows what's best. Next slide, please. Do it so that you can receive the ultimate blessing from God. There's a blessing in obedience 
every single time. Stay faithful to God. He has your best interest in mind. Regardless of what it looks like, how it feels, he has your best interest in mind. Trust him. He's been doing this a long time, you all. He's going to do it even after we're gone. You one day are going to have to make that choice. God, I'm going to trust you. Or you're going to say, I'm not even going to think about it because I'm not going to trust him that way. It's a fight. This life is real. It's not like Rocky or Creed. It's not a movie. It's about eternity. You know, one day we're not going to open our eyes again in this life. That's scary. That's death. We think it's scary. But there's another thought that gives me hope. The Bible says God can come back at any moment. He can come back before I finish this. We could be in heaven. Next slide, please. God's family is close to the heart of the Father. There's a book by Henry Blackaby called Experiencing God. It's this one simple premise. Find out what God is doing and go there. Next slide. Remember, your obedience to God reveals your proximity to his heart. How are you doing? Are you listening to daddy? Did he say go get mama? Did he say go preach the gospel? Did he say go to China? Did he say to go to Haiti? Did he say to go to North Minneapolis? Did he say to marry that man, not marry that man? Did he say to marry that woman, not marry that woman? What is he saying? Next slide. Today's a new slide we introduced. This is something new for us. I'm excited about this. Greg, he made it look pretty because mine wasn't pretty, but he made it look pretty. Because we want you to get something out of this. All right? One day I'm going to ask you, pull out your phones, put this on Facebook, or put it on your notes, wherever. Write this down somewhere. Question one, what did you learn today? Did you learn anything at all today? I tried to keep the Viking analogies down today. Sometimes I get a little excited with that. So I didn't do, we didn't do Vikings or Marvel. Christy rebuked me about Luke Cage. So I didn't do, I, I'm not doing anything today. I just try to stay focused. <laughs> What'd you learn? All right. So why'd you learn it? Because you heard it. I guarantee if we ask everybody what you heard, everybody would say something different because the Holy Spirit is a teacher. What did God tell you today? Why did he say it? What difference does this make for your life? If what God told you today is objectively true, what difference does it make? So, what can you do with what you learn? How can you use it going forward? How can you, now, this is the part that is most important to me. What can you immediately apply for what you heard today? Everybody's taking pictures. I'll, I'll give you the PowerPoint, you all. <laughs> I would do it. Lastly, 
what changes do I need to make to apply it? Pastor Sean, come up here, sir. Oh, I'm so late. Okay, we're going to do a quick job breaking down, but I'm late. This is important. So, Pastor Sean, I wish I had a picture. I'm not calling you out, brother. But Pastor Sean has lost how much? Oh, we need a mic. How much weight have you lost, sir? Uh, 65 pounds. Now, I would love to say that we had something to do with it in the church, but that's not true, right? That's not true. It's not true. But, but why be it brutally, and now this is on TV, I'll just let you know. <laughs> but, but why did you actually go through this process? Uh, well, at the beginning of the year, it started with a scare, uh, a medical scare. Uh, when I got my physical, they told me that I was facing uh, high blood pressure. I was on the borderline of having to take medication. Uh, and I'm only 37, I think, yeah, 37 years old. Not, he's you done! Stopped, you stopped Repent. counting after 32. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but it, it was enough to scare me, and obviously having a, a toddler, and I'm just like, you know, and I've been, you know, we was talking about this today, me and some other, the other men in the church, and uh, I've been in a cycle constantly for the last maybe five to seven years of going on diets, going on diets, going on diets, and I would do well for two, three months and then fall right back into, you know, going back to old eating habits. And um, and this time around, the scare caused me to really do some reflection, some self-reflection about why am I eating so much? And uh, what I've come to terms with and is that uh, I, I, I eat, and you hear this all the time, like I eat my emotions. Uh, I went through a season of a lot of stress, and when I get stressed, I eat. And <laughs> so, um, so as much as me going on a lifestyle change and how I'm eating and things like that over the last 10 months, it also had a lot of spiritual implication in my life because as I continued to do that, God started to show me like, I wasn't really trusted in him in the areas that I would go usually go and eat. And, um, and now over this last 10 months, you know, and my wife has come on board now, and I, I don't want to take all the credit, but she's lost 25 pounds, Ooh. you know. Preach, you, preach, babe. preach. That's what it looks like. <laughs> that's, that, that's, the, that's, the, that's, the, that's some husband points, you know. You got to get those. Uh, <laughs> but, um. Hurry up so I get mine. <laughs> <laughs> but, um. But honestly, you know, um, yeah, you know, so God, he, he showed me the spiritual implication and, um, and it's been, it's been awesome, man. Um, we're not trying to look at this as, again, like we really watch how we grocery shop and things like that. And we still enjoy food here and there, but it is not my God anymore, you know? And, uh, and now I'm running to the Lord and uh, I feel closer to God. I feel like I have more control over my life. And, um, and it's just been, it's been an awesome, really awesome journey over these last 10 months. So, There's so much meat in what he said. We could literally eat off. <laughs> We're a long time. We can't go there this morning. <laughs> but to you today, some of you I might not see again. Honestly, that's the reality of life. Tomorrow's not promised. But what I hope you take away is this. Pastor Sean didn't just 
changed because he did a diet. He said he had been trying to diet, but he made a lifestyle change. Today's sermon is not about one act of obedience. It's about a lifestyle, following Jesus, following God. You have to make it a lifestyle. It's not a one-time thing. Can I pray for you? Yahweh, you are the everlasting King, the Almighty. We worship you. We as humans have lost the reality of how life is, how to overcome, how to win well. We need you. Thank you for sending us the example. Your heart, your son, and sacrificing him for us all. Reveal yourself to us today. Help us learn how to obey you every single day the rest of our lives. This has been a presentation of Endurance Church. For more about the ministry, head to endurancechurch.org. Follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash endurancechurch and like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash endurancechurch.tv. Remember to live well and finish strong. I give you all my heart. on my